Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday the 19th of January, Matt Fell taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Matt takes us through the Gospel of John. Matt is currently doing a PhD at Cambridge on the origin of language, and he also leads the gap year training for the relational mission movement of churches. Let's take a listen to the session. It's a real joy to be back here, and I'm, I really love this school of theology. Uh, just the vision for it, the way Andy and the guys have set it up, I just think it's a really awesome thing. So uh, be glad uh, that you've got this on offer and you can come. And uh, I know some of the other speakers who are going to come and speak, and, and they're all great. I'm sorry about me. Um, <laughs> And, and it's just it's wonderful to, to come to a different part of the world and to meet people who I don't know, but who are family in Christ and who want to spend the morning, a Saturday morning, uh, getting into scripture and thinking about deep and lofty things and life-changing things. And that kind of uh, sets me up for the first thing I want to say this morning. Uh, I want to serve you guys really well, and so I'm going to help you understand John's gospel, the structure of it, and different points and questions of contention about the authorship and all that silly stuff. And then we're going to do Doctrine of the Trinity and I'm going to talk to you about church history and we're going to maybe use some big Greek words. Uh, And in doing all of that, I really don't want us to miss the point this morning. And what is the point? Well, if you have your Bible, which I really hope you do, open it to John 15. And... uh, I mean, when Andy sent me the, the list of topics to speak on at the School of Theology, uh, like a year and a half ago, uh, my heart leapt for joy that I could do this morning, because these are probably my two favourite things to teach on. I mean, don't get me wrong, teaching on Leviticus was good fun back in April, <laughs> and the doctrine of sin. But, uh, but, you know, if I was to be marooned on a desert island, and I could only take one book of the Bible, it would be the Gospel of John. I, I love it. It's just... Um, I mean, I love all the scripture, of course, but John's gospel just has some of, like, for me, the most kind of heartwarming, soul-stirring passages of scripture. And John 15 is a particular favorite of mine, where Jesus says those famous words, I am the true vine. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. And then he says this. Abide in my love. This is verse 9. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Like no one in the history of the world ever spoke like this. No other religious leader, political figure ever spoke words just... So world-changing than this. Jesus says that you, O Christian, are to live in his love. You're to abide, to remain, to, to set your stall and stay there. And so being a Christian 
getting into the words of John's gospel, thinking about doctrine. It's all about this. It's about getting ourselves into the love of Christ. Of a love that we're going to find out is the eternal foundation of everything. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. The very depth of God is love. And we're going to hear about that in our, in our later session on the Trinity. And Jesus is inviting us into this love. And he says, I've said these things to you that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete. And so this morning, as we do all the doctrine stuff and as we you know, talk about authorship and those kind of things, we, we want to make sure we're, we're, we're looking through those things towards this love of Jesus. And my aim is that we all leave here filled with his joy. Amen. Yeah? Um, so uh, if you feel like at any point you want to stop me and just kind of say, where's the joy? <laughs> or like, you know, just tell me why this matters. Uh, then I will stop everything that I, I'm, I'm doing and, and try and just kind of say why that matters and why it should lead to our joy and, and our experience of Christ's love. Does that sound okay? Great. It's a two-way thing, teaching. Um, and that's how I prefer to teach, you know. So if you need to ask a question to clarify, please interrupt. If it's a slightly kind of, uh, if it's going to lead us down a bit of a rabbit hole, I might say, come chat to me during the break. Um, but if it's, particularly if it's a clarifying question, it'd be really helpful. It will serve everybody else in the room and it will serve me if you ask it. Yeah? So two-way thing, this, this, this process. Um, and to start you off... Uh, participating and chatting away turn to the folks on your table and i want to ask you a question and the question is this why do you think there's four gospels and not just one why do you think there's four gospels just have a little chat about that for a minute Okay, let's, uh, let's have a couple of folks who are feeling brave shout out what your table talked about. Why do you think we have four Gospels? Different points of view. Different points of view. Yeah. Different it's good. audiences. Different audiences, maybe, yeah. Because God willed it. Because God willed it. <laughs> yeah. But that's interesting, isn't it? That tells us something, that I think all three of those answers are right. Um, God willed it because he wanted this message to be shared by different points of view for different audiences at different times and different places. Um, and there's something, something really worthwhile in that. 
Why have I got you to ask that question to start us off with? Well, um, I'm only dealing with one gospel today, thank goodness. Uh, Liam's got three, the other three to deal with next time. But I think um, whenever you are looking at one of the gospels, I think there's real worth in trying to work out why did the author write this one? Um, writing in the ancient world was not a particularly easy thing to do, let alone then kind of copying. Uh, and we, we have, well, we have records of thousands of copies of the New Testament Gospels, uh, which is a really laborious task for folks to copy out. You know, no word processing, not even typewriters, uh, no printing press either. Uh, to get hold of the materials alone was a hard thing. Why is it that we have four? Why is it that this author in particular wanted to, to write down an account of Jesus' life? And so what we're going to do is we're going to start off by just thinking about who the author is and why he wrote this gospel. Um, now, maybe like if you went back 50 years, perhaps, um, and you picked up a commentary on John's gospel... Um, and actually, I think quite a lot of the more recent ones still kind of have this. You'd find that the first bit, you'd get bogged down in, in all sorts of textual criticism and questions which doubted the, uh, the authorship of John's gospel, the reliability and, and all sorts of stuff. So uh, let, me, let me give you this. Um, I didn't write this. This is uh, taken from somebody else. But um, 50 years ago, uh, the typical academic biblical scholar would have told you the following story about John's Gospel. John's Gospel is clearly written in the second century, so that's, that's AD 100 after onwards. It's not by an eyewitness. It's a piece of textual composition with, a quite, a, with quite a complicated history where an early level of very, very speculative and rather unorthodox theology has been uneasily married to a later editor's work, smoothing it all out. It was very, very popular with Gnostics, who were a bunch of heretics in the second century, and the mainstream church, church took quite a long time to accept it in its full integrity. As a source for history, it's very unreliable, and it presents us with a highly complex theology whose relationship with the other Gospels and with St. Paul is pretty difficult to work out. Thankfully, that's a load of nonsense. Um, which is just an interesting kind of reflection on how biblical studies changes over time. Um, actually, there's very good evidence to say that pretty much every point of that paragraph is wrong. Uh, so first off, let's think about the kind of textual evidence of John's Gospel. Um, the very earliest copy of a New Testament text, so that the, the oldest frag piece of paper we've got containing a bit of the new testament is from john's gospel um, and it was found in egypt in the year 2000 uh, it, it was found in egypt and then we can date it back to 120 a.d uh, which tells us lots of things um, first uh, we know that the gospel the writer of the gospel all the evidence uh, from church history suggests that whoever wrote the fourth gospel wrote it in Turkey. So, then, so that tells us that our gospel went on a bit of a journey, uh, that it was copied and that copy was, was sent down the road and copied again and copied again and copied again. And that takes time. So you can at least uh, take away a solid 10 years from the AD 20 mark there. Um, sorry, I've, I've jumped a step or two. Um, 
you can, you can subtract a solid 20 years from the AD, uh, AD 20. And so that pushes you back into the first century. Then, um, But then there's another piece of interesting evidence. If you look at the writings of the first Christians outside of the New Testament, so you've got the authors of the New Testament, the the, the first generation of apostles, and then you've got their disciples, so people uh, who they pastored in church who come after them, so folks like Clements, and a, they've got some good names, Clements, Polycarp, and Ignatius are the, are the kind of leading lights of that second generation of the church. And in their work, you have references and allusions to John's gospel. So, you know, John has some really famous lines, doesn't he? So, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. You've got these authors copying that, referencing that, uh, in the latter bit of the first century. Which then kind of gives us the impression that, that you can push the writing of John's gospel even further back. So, maybe somewhere between AD 70 and AD 100 at the latest, I'd probably think of safe bets, maybe AD 90, uh, which means it was written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of those who were there, who, who were in Galilee when Jesus was walking. Um, and so uh, our kind of 50 years ago, biblical scholar says it's not historically trustworthy. Well, actually, it looks like it, it, it could be, very much so. Another reason why John's gospel was often kind of uh, thought to be a later thing is, is in it, Jesus makes some of the most explicit statements in the New Testament about his identity. That, you know, he says things like, I've come from above, I've come, I've come from my father in heaven, me and the father are one. And then he has all these I am sayings that we'll look at in a bit. And, and so people thought, well, you know, well, it's just remarkable to be honest so people were reading the bible about 50 60 years ago going well this can't be true uh and the church must have made all of this up jesus is probably just a good man like you and i uh therefore all this stuff about him claiming to be god must have been a later invention for people you know trying to control the world and and oppress women and slaves and all of this nonsense um and it's just been shown to be absolute codwallop <laughs> um that and actually so as biblical scholars have, have done more work on the rest of the new testament they see that other writers like matthew and, and mark and luke have a very high view of who jesus is and actually they're communicating the same message just in a different way um, and so all the reasons why john's gospel was kind of put to one side have fizzled away into the background uh, why does that matter it means that this is a trustworthy document uh, and it means that you know, the people who are top of their field and working on, on, on biblical studies and now are saying this is quite likely, most likely, to be written by somebody who knew Jesus, who walked with him, who saw him, uh, which is pretty cool because John's Gospel does make some incredible claims. So, who wrote it and why? Well, the, uh, the author on one hand is kind of gives us the answers to these things in the gospel so at the end of john's gospel chapter 20 he says these, he says this these things are written so that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name what's a little bit more uh 
confusing is the question of who wrote it. Now, the author refers to himself quite a lot of times throughout the, the gospel. He, he refers to himself. Does anybody know how... Yeah, I know. <laughs> He's clearly got a lot of self-confidence, hasn't he, this guy? He says, yeah, oh yeah, it is there, isn't it? Yeah, that's the problem with notes, isn't it? Gives the answers. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, clearly, clearly, whoever wrote this was very confident in his relationship with Jesus and had quite good self-esteem. In fact, uh, one of my favourite lines from the whole of the New Testament come uh, in, verse, in chapter 20, where uh, the writer is describing how uh, he and the Apostle Peter uh, responded to the news that the tomb was empty, that Mary Magdalene came back and said, the tomb is empty, the body's gone, this is on Easter Sunday. And, and so he says this, um, so Peter went with the other disciple, that's, that's the author, and they were going to the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Marvellous. Um, and the fact that people copied that as well, that they thought it was, uh, yeah, anyway, it's very funny. Um, so who, who is this disciple whom Jesus loved? Well, uh, traditionally, it was always thought that it was, it was the Apostle John the brother of James, the two sons of Zebedee, the fishermen who Jesus called to follow him. Um, and tradition from very early on kind of says fourth gospels written by, by the apostle John. Um, more evidence for that? Well, um, at the end of the gospel, when Jesus is on the cross, or towards the end of the gospel when he's on the cross, uh, he says to jo- well to the author, he says, um, behold, your mother pointing to Mary. Um, and what Jesus is doing in that moment is he's, he's basically giving his mother to be looked after by this disciple. Uh, and we, we know, historians know, that the Apostle John and Mary both ended their lives living in Ephesus together, uh, which is, just kind of seems to back up what's going on here. However, things get a little bit more confusing because there was another John in Ephesus called John the Elder, who uh, reportedly had also been a disciple of Jesus from early on um, and had been there in Palestine with Jesus uh, and then eventually made his way to Ephesus. So who is it? Uh, Well, to be honest, it depends on what day of the week. I'm going to give you a slightly different answer. Um, I think today is, I think it's John the Apostle, but I I wouldn't take a bullet for that. Um, Does it matter I don't know if it does, because either way, our two likely candidates are figures who were there with Jesus in the beginning, and we can trace that back to church history, which, which affirms what the author is saying here. Um, so either way, we know it was a disciple who was close to Jesus, who was there from the beginning, who witnessed all of these things, uh, and has mulled them over in his mind, and finally set them down on paper. The question of authorship is really of secondary importance because the true author of scripture is the Holy Spirit. Um, and the Spirit works through particular people and particular times and, and does so, uh, well, for his own we- wisdom and, and reasons. Um, 
But either way, we, we can be assured that the Spirit works through these words and that these were set down by somebody who was there and who saw, uh, who was an eyewitness, a close member of Jesus' party. Um, it's worth thinking about just how this gospel's distinct from, from the other three. Um, because if you read some of the other Gospels, they're a bit more action-packed than John. They're a bit more page-turners, particularly kind of Mark. It's like, Jesus did this, boom, Jesus did that, bang. Like, you move on at a rate of knots. Where in John's Gospel, uh, it's like the authors decided to slow down, to pause and reflect upon things. Um, and so, you know, I kind of think of, of Mark's Gospel as a kind of like, uh, you know, when you're really hungry and you've come home from work and you sit down and you just kind of gobble all your food up straight away. Whereas uh, John's gospel is a little bit more like fine dining. You're eating out and you want to kind of, you know, like you've been saving up for months for this. You're not going to eat another meal as nice as this for the rest of the year. You know, you kind of savour it. You chew on, you know, every mouthful. Um, John's gospel is a little bit like that. He's much more selective in what he takes from Jesus's life and takes much more time to kind of unpack it and to let it breathe and just to go into all the different implications of what's going on. And so, in particular, you have some very long uh, and detailed dialogues, conversations between Jesus and somebody else. Or, or, or even in John 17, you have one of Jesus' prayers. It's a lengthy, long prayer. Um, and, and John's recording it, sharing it with us. Um, and a lot of these dialogues and, and things don't appear in the other Gospels. The language that John uses... I mean, John's a really interesting one and, and kind of I find it very encouraging because on one hand, it's really profound. You've got some of the kind of uh, most theologically loaded sentences in the whole of the New Testament in John's Gospels, some of the biggest claims about Jesus and who he is. And at the same time, it's all written down in really simple language, which is kind of what reassures me <laughs> that you can be profound whilst being simple. Um, because, and John repeats himself quite a lot. Um, and so as you read the gospel, you kind of find that, you know, for example, John 15, I am the true vine. I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. I abide in my father's love, abide in my love. Do my commandments. If you do my commandments, you abide in my love. Can you see it? it kind of goes round and round and round. Which is uh, good evidence that the author has has committed these words and the things that he's saying to oral memory. We live in an age where, you know, we have books, we have magazines, we're always reading stuff on our phones. We live in a very textual age. Uh, and that wasn't the case in the first century. It was an oral society where, you know, families and, and villages and groups would come together around stories which would be shared and told. And you would learn these stories off by heart. You'd live by them. Um, and so John's gospel has that feel. Um, it it's kind of sounds like these are, these are sayings that somebody has committed to memory, internalised, um, and has shared again and again and again. Um, and so, although it's, it's quite simplistic in how it, it writes, it, it, it seems to be capturing these things that Jesus said. And it seems to be the reflections of somebody who's lived by these sayings for a long, long time. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question because um, 
again, if you went back 50 years and kind of the age of biblical studies cynicism about John's gospel, people would say John's gospel is theologically very uh, developed. You've got kind of, you know, uh, quite a strong sense of the Trinity and things like this. Um, Therefore, it couldn't have been written by the Apostle John because we know he was a fisherman. Um, And, you know, I mean... I've never met a fisherman, but I, I, don't, I don't think I'd assume that they were thick. You know, it's just a very silly way of thinking, isn't it? But um, so there was this idea that um, because it was so kind of profound in the doctrine, it was kind of saying it couldn't have been written by a simple fisherman. Um, and there's just all sorts of problems with that. One is the fact that actually, even though it is very profound, it is written very simply. Um, but also fishermen in the ancient world could be very educated, um, and so you could be a fisherman and be a rabbi in ancient Israel. I mean, think about the Apostle Paul. He's a rabbi, but he's also a, uh, a tent maker. Um, and so often you'd have like both of these vocations. Um, I think this, the, the simple style of John's gospel reflects more that this, is, this has been internalized and shared whereas a text like Luke Luke says at the very beginning I've gone and researched these things and written them down Luke's a doctor he's a writer um, and so it's it's and I think Matthew and Mark were probably more Matthew at least anyway was was probably written by somebody who was a writer whereas John's gospel I think is is more the setting down of of things which have just been remembered and thought on for a long long time um I'm jumping around a little bit on my notes and I'm going to put it down to sleep deprivation. Um, in a couple of pages, you've got a big wad of text, quotes from church history. I'm just going to read one of them and I think it might pop. There it is, yeah. Um, this, is, this is taken from... Um, uh, from a document that we have, which is uh, one of the first, well, no, it is the first list of New Testament books. Um, it's not the same list that we have. It's not the same collection of books that we have in our New Testament, but it's one of the first times the church sat down and said, let's write a list of the books that we think need to come together, you know, to be the official canon of, uh, of, of Scripture. Um, and in this list, they make a few comments on some of the books that they've kept in. And they, they say this about John. The fourth gospel is that of John, one of the disciples. Again, it's not very clear as to whether that's the Apostle John, one of the 12 disciples, or, or just another John who is a disciple. Um, when his fellow disciples and bishops, or we could read elders there, entreated him, he said, fast now with me for the space of three days and let us recount to one another whatever may be revealed to us. In other words, let's, let's fast and pray and let's just share our memories of Jesus as the Spirit brings them to mind. On the same night, it was revealed to Andrew, one of the apostles, that John should narrate all things in his own name as they called them to mind. And so... Well, so pause again there. So you've got the apostle Andrew's there. There's some elders of the church. There's John the disciple, whoever that is, John the apostle or not. 
and they're, they're sitting down, they're praying, they're saying, we want to write down our reflections, our memories of Jesus. And Andrew says, John, you're the one to take lead on this. And then it goes on, it says, although different points are taught to us in the several books of the Gospels, there is no difference as regard the faith of believers, since in all of them, everything is related under one imperial spirit. John professes himself not only to be the eyewitness, but also the hearer. And besides that, the historian of all the wondrous facts concerning the Lord in their order. I think that's just really helpful. You know, that's a really early text. I think that's uh, middle of the second century. And they're they're saying, "We, we trust this book because we know the story of how it was written. We know the bloke who wrote it. And we know that he was an eyewitness. And what's more, the Holy Spirit worked through it. Uh, therefore, we can be confident in it. One uh, thing which comes up a lot about John's Gospel is how different it is, uh, not just broadly, how it tells the, or, the story of Jesus' life in a very different way to the other Gospels. It, it gives a different order to events. Can anybody think of um, some, some things which are quite different in John's Gospel? Don't worry. We, yeah. Who said that? Um, give us a wave. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the cleansing of the temple. Uh, Jesus, uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus goes into the temple uh, at the, towards the end of his ministry, like a few days before he dies, and, you know, it's the exciting action Indiana Jones scene where he grabs a whip and cracks it and chases out the, uh, the uh, moneylenders. In John's Gospel, he does it right at the beginning, so which one is it? And there's a few other uh, events like that as well. So um, the miraculous uh, fishing trip, you know, when the disciples aren't catching anything and all of a sudden they bring in a huge load. That seems to happen at the end of John's gospel after Jesus' resurrection. doesn't mention it earlier on. Uh, the incident where a woman comes and uh, pours uh, perfume on Jesus' feet, that's different order in John's gospel as well. Um, and there's a few other things. John also gives us stories which the other Gospels don't record, and he misses out some quite important things from the other Gospels. So there's no virgin birth in John's Gospel. There's no account of a transfiguration where Jesus and the disciples go up the mountain and his glory is revealed. And there's no instance of Jesus uh, uh, introducing the Lord's Supper, you know, communion, bread and wine. Uh, these things are missing from John's Gospel. But that quote that we just read out from the screen up above um, goes to say that although different things are recounted in John's Gospel, um, actually, we trust that John's Gospel, um, well, it, interesting, he, he says that we trust that it's history, um, because John professes himself not only to be the eyewitness, but also the hearer, and besides that, the historian of all the wondrous facts concerning the Lord in their order. For a long time, people thought John's Gospel is kind of this later, slightly weird, odd, theological reflection and so Matthew Mark and Luke because they agree must be more trustworthy as to the order of Jesus's life but that quote that we read says that the early church believed John's gospel to be a more accurate timeline of Jesus's life Um, and people are starting to think that that might actually have been the case and I think that's the case I think John gives us a more accurate account of Jesus's life and we'll talk about why I think that in a minute or two um, I 
Okay, let's summarize all this like authorship stuff and actually get into the text. We know that the gospel was written by an eyewitness, either the Apostle John or John the Elder. It's slower paced than the other gospels, but I think that is because it's being uh, written down by somebody who has spent a lifetime reflecting on the things that Jesus has said. I also think that the author, whoever he was, uh, knew about the other gospels. I think uh, the author was aware that Matthew, Mark and, and Luke had done their gospels and wanted to share things that they remembered that hadn't been put down yet. And I think that's quite important. Um, and that's why it takes time to reflect upon stories which are in the other gospel. It takes much longer to think about them. And I think it's a very precious gospel for the insights it gives us into the life of Jesus and his understanding of his own identity. Now we're coming up to your first coffee break, uh, but I've got an activity for you to do beforehand. Now I greatly underestimated how many of you there would be here. Um, so I need to break you into four groups. <laughs> so I think the way I'm gonna do this is the, oh, I have no idea how I'm gonna do this. How many tables is there? There's. 12 tables. Okay, so that's uh, four times three, isn't it? Great. Yeah, I um, <laughs> managed to get into Cambridge. Basic maths. Still very difficult for me. Um, so if you can get into, if we can arrange ourselves into tables of four. So I wonder if we do it like the first four here, the first four there, the first four there, and then the guys at the back come together. Uh, and I've got... Um, in these envelopes, can we pass these around? So if I, if you guys can take one of them to go right back. And then, um, I have, I think there's like 20 uh, little kind of Polaroid snaps of John's gospel. Um, each picture represents a, an episode or a moment in John's gospel, uh, but I've mixed them up. They shouldn't, they're not in order. And so without you need to close your Bibles and I will be looking around to see if there's any open Bibles. Uh, you've got a couple of minutes to try and put them in order. Uh, how many minutes shall I give you? I'm going to give you two minutes. Two minutes. Okay. Okay, if you want to grab your seats for seconds, see how you got on. What we're going to do um, is we're just going to spend five minutes just talking about this and the order of the gospel and the structure of it and then you can go have your coffee so just hold off five minutes uh coffee is coming i promise um okay so i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to come on down i'm gonna have to come on down oh wow what happened here <laughs> um okay are we going left to what right here Whoa, that's going to throw me out. Let's go over here. Okay, so. Okay, you know what? I, I probably should have uh, given you a heads up that I missed out the prologue. So, you know, the, in the beginning was the word. And, that word. Um, and, and the reason I've just thought I should have said that to you is because a lot of people have, have put this picture. I mean, what did you think was going on here? Like... The world didn't receive him. Okay, yeah, that could have that could have been it. I mean, it's not. 
but um, it could have been it. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll move that slightly elsewhere. Uh, so, but most of you seem to have uh, John the Baptist pretty early on. Um, there he is, behold the lamb. Uh, so you have the beginning of John's gospel starts with the prologue, and we'll, we'll unpack that separately in a minute or two. And then you go into the action with John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist is uh, kind of seen to be like the last of Israel's prophets. Um, God hasn't spoken for a long, long time to his people by the time we get into the New Testament. And then all of a sudden, John the Baptist is this kind of enigmatic figure uh, who goes off into the wilderness, kind of reminds people of Elijah, um, and he is, he's preaching uh, repentance. He's saying, Israel, we need to change our way of thinking. We need to come back to the Lord. And as a picture of that, he starts baptising people in the Jordan. And the Jordan's significant because it's, it's the river that God's people entered into the Promised Land when they came out of the Exodus. And so it's like a re-entering into God's covenant relationship. It's like a re-putting yourself under the water like you went under the sea coming out of Egypt. It's a starting again. Uh, but despite being this very important figure, John the Baptist uh, spends all his time preaching about one who's to come. Uh, and he says some, some mighty things uh, about this Messiah figure. And then finally, one day, Jesus walks down the road. John sees him. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. So that happens first. And then these guys got it right. Uh, then follow me. Jesus calls the disciples to follow him. Uh, and it's quite different to how it is in the other Gospels. Um, and you want to get coffee, but I feel like it might be worth just chatting about this. Um, in the other Gospels... Jesus is walking by the Lake of Galilee and the, the disciples are in their boats and he says, follow me. And they go, yes. And it's very dramatic and very quick. Um, and John's gospel seems to be slightly more different. The disciples are already following John the Baptist. Uh, and then John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God. And then they start one by one following Jesus. Does this kind of contradict one another? Well, no, I don't think it does. Um, I think all of us would know from our own lives that coming to follow Jesus is a, is a bit of a process, isn't it? And you have multiple moments. Maybe you were in church for a little while and you heard about Jesus. And you had, maybe it was your parents, a friend saying, behold, the Lamb of God. Um, and for a long time you're like, yeah, maybe, okay. And then there was a moment when you heard Jesus's voice. Not calling, I don't think. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> And, you know, and Jesus said, follow me. And then in that moment, it was dramatic. And so I think, I think the Gospels give us these complementary pictures and what's going on with the disciples. So I think they were fishermen who were already following John the Baptist uh, and had heard about Jesus. And then one day Jesus called them in, that, in the context of them having a, already a bit of a relationship with him. And, and they went, yes. Does that make sense? Splendid. Super. Um, and then next we have the wedding in Cana where Jesus goes to a wedding with his, with his uh, mother, Mary, and the wine runs out. And Mary says, go talk to Jesus. And Jesus then says this, woman, what has this to do with me? And we all read that and we're like, whoa. Um, perhaps a better translation would be uh, madam, mom. It's more of a kind of respectful thing uh, rather than, yeah, anyway. Um, my, yeah, yeah uh, I'm going to tell you about how I tried woman on my mum and it didn't work out very well, but let's not go into that. Uh, then uh, after that, we, um, these guys have 
put Nicodemus, but alas, no, the temple cleansing comes next. Right at the start. And so this, in John's Gospel, this is Jesus kind of kick-starting the party, you know. He's, uh, he's called a few followers to himself, but hasn't really done much. Um, he's gone to this wedding and done this, this miracle, um, but it's quite a, you know, it's a private event. So maybe news would have spread, but it's not done anything big and public yet. Uh, and then he goes to Jerusalem, and then he goes to the temple and, and does this big act, and that kickstarts his ministry. And John puts it right at the beginning, because from then on, the, the, the Jewish authorities are hostile to Jesus. Um, we'll talk about why I think it's more likely that John, John is giving us a more historically accurate account in a minute. Uh, after that, into chapter three, we have the conversation with Nicodemus. Did you guys get what that was? Yeah, okay. I was doing this, uh, my, my wife was looking at this late last night as I was chopping it up and she was like, they're never going to get that. And I was like, thanks, my love. That's very helpful. Um, after Nicodemus, we go to, the, to chapter three. Just seeing if I've not. Yeah, we're in chapter three, uh, four even. And the woman at the well, where Jesus goes to Samaria and meets woman at the well. And uh, we'll talk about that a bit later. Ch- after chapter four comes chapter five again. Good with the maths. Uh, and Jesus heals a paralytic man um, in Jerusalem. Uh, after that, I'm afraid it's not the blind man. He comes later. After that, it's the feeding of the 5,000, um, which is in the other Gospels. But John tells it with much more detail. It's much slower, uh, much richer account. And in that, Jesus gives this teaching about himself. He says, I am the bread of life. Uh, And he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, um, you have no life in you. Shocking, dramatic lines. Um, And if you want to know what he means by that, talk to your elders. (laughs) Um, But but earlier on I said John's Gospel doesn't include an account of Jesus initiating the the Lord's Supper. Um, But what it does have is it has this teaching from John 6 about communion uh, and what Jesus is, is teaching us to what's going on in there. And a bit of, bit of a kind of uh, bugbear of mine is that sometimes I think we don't quite take enough of what is going on in communion. Um, and as charismatics, as people who believe that God works powerfully in our church meetings, I think uh, going back and thinking what communion might be about, I think is something, it's a task for us to do. But that's, that's a rant and I'll leave that to one side. After that, Uh, still in chapter six we have Jesus walking on water Uh, again occurs in the other gospels but it's particularly interesting in um, in John's gospel then we go into chapter seven and this was this was quite a hard one so this is chapter seven it's the streams of running water because in chapter seven Jesus goes back to Jerusalem uh, of course it is Uh, he goes to the um, to Jerusalem and stands up and he says the, those famous words, if anybody thirsts, come to me and I'll give you streams of living water. Um, wonderful stuff. You then have a very interesting little episode in John's Gospel where you have, uh, does anybody know what this was? Yeah. What is it? The woman caught in adultery. A wonderful, wonderful story. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a second because I'm pretty certain John didn't write it. So what's it doing in John's Gospel? Oh! Um, (laughs) uh, After that, in the rest of chapter 8, Jesus teaches, I am the light of the world. 
uh, and he says lots of other important things which get him into a lot of trouble. Uh, and then in chapter nine, that hang on, that's eight. Chapter nine to kind of illustrate the whole light and the darkness, seeing and blindness. He heals a blind man and gets into trouble for that, uh, and does a little bit more teaching. Then we come into chapter ten where Jesus teaches, uh, I am the good shepherd. Um, I thought he looked like a very happy shepherd, and I thought that that would be quite appropriate. Um, And then after he teaches on being the good shepherd, he teaches that he and the father are one, and the Jews go to stone him. They go to kill him because they get what he's saying. He's saying that he is equal with God, his father. Uh, Then we have the healing of Lazarus. And I'm just going to stop there for a second because people often divide John's gospel into two halves. Chapters 1 to 11 uh, and then chapters 12 to 21. And they're called the first half the book of signs and the second half the book of the passion or the book of glory. Um, And there's something very helpful about that. But also it kind of almost sounds like it's two different works and it's not. It's clearly that this was always one work uh, one author weaving his themes in and out. But John gives us, um, from early on, this, this idea that Jesus is, is uh, giving us signs of who he is. So when he goes to the wedding in Cana and turns the water into wine, he, uh, John says this is the first of his signs. And after that, John leaves it to us, the reader, to spot what the signs are. And John gives us seven signs. John likes the number seven, as do a lot of Bible writers. Um, And so he gives us seven signs. So the first one is the wedding at Cana. Uh, Oh, now I need to remember what they all are, don't I? The second one, I think, is the healing of the the paralytic. Then the bread and the fish. Then the the walking on water. Then the healing of the blind man. Yeah, okay. And then Lazarus is number six. Um, and Lazarus is this, this big culmination of Jesus's signs and they're public. They're all things. I mean, the wedding one's a little bit more private, but they're all public signs um, testifying to who Jesus is. Lazarus is this big one. And after Lazarus, um, the Jewish authorities say we've got to kill this Jesus. And they even decide to kill Lazarus um, to try and cover it all up. Um, Lazarus doesn't appear in the other Gospels. And one theory I've heard about this, which I'm, I wouldn't take a bullet for it, but I think it probably fits, is that um, if people wanted to kill Lazarus, uh, the other Gospel writers who were writing earlier and who were writing closer to where Lazarus would have lived might not have wanted to be like, oh yeah, and go chat to Lazarus. He'll like, testify. He just lives down the road. Let me give you his address. Um, and so they keep it a little bit quieter. Um, so Lazarus is the sixth and the, the big public sign. Uh, and then after that, the gospel changes. It becomes much more about Jesus's teaching to his close disciples and his preparing them for his death than it is about, you know, big public signs. Uh, and so they call it the book of the passion, referring to his death. Passion just means suffering or the book of glory, because in John's gospel, and we'll talk about this later, Jesus's death on the cross is his glorification. Uh, so that takes us up to chapter 12 and in chapter 12 Jesus rides in on a donkey 
But he also, yeah, no, no, I'm confusing myself. Yes, chapter 12, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's recorded in the other Gospels. Uh, it's a fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy about Israel's king coming on a donkey. Um, and people shout, Hosanna. Uh, then in chapter 13, oh dear, I'm losing track of myself, aren't I? Yeah. Uh, the guys are helping me out here. <laughs> you guys should teach for next session. Um, Jesus washes the, the feet of the disciples. Um, then in chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, at this point, you could have you put here to help. Um, does anybody know what that's referencing? Yeah, the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. But we, him and the Father, we are going to come to you. We're going to send you a helper, uh, the Holy Spirit. Um, now, you could have had that there in chapter 14 or in chapter 16, because the helper is referred to twice. So uh, that's like a bonus one. Um, then you go into chapter 15, and we've read it earlier on. I am divine, you are the branches. Wonderful. Uh, and then after that, we have the world will hate you. <laughs> Which is the world being angry. Uh, after that, chapter 17, Jesus uh, prays, and it's known as the high priestly prayer, Jesus' high priestly prayer, is where he prays for his disciples before uh, he goes to the cross. He's then arrested in chapter 18, tried in chapter 19, crucified chapter 20, and then the seventh sign in John's Gospel is the resurrection, Jesus' own resurrection chapter 20 and then finally he barbecues on the beach with his disciples um are you released do i want to give you coffee or do i just want to say let me just recap on the order and then let me just talk about why i think it's more historically accurate and then we'll break um so John's Gospel, you've got these two kind of big sections, the Book of Signs, the Book of Glory. At the beginning, you have the prologue, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, and then at the end, in chapter 21, you've got the epilogue. Um, the story seems to wrap up. Uh, after the resurrection, you've got Thomas, one of the disciples who hasn't seen Jesus, and he doubts, and Jesus appears, and Thomas falls down on his face and says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't correct him. And you kind of, this is like the pinnacle of the gospel. You, you know, we have the confession of somebody who's doubted, uh, who says, you are God, God incarnate. Uh, and John says, you know, these things are written so that you may believe and have life. And you think, great, good work, John. Uh, you've written a cracking gospel. And then it keeps going. Uh, like Lord of the Rings, it just doesn't seem to end. Kind of ending after ending. Um, and then you have this slightly strange story of the disciples I've seen Jesus, but they're a bit confused. They go fishing. Jesus turns up. They have a huge catch. And then uh, Jesus and Peter have this conversation, uh, which kind of echoes Peter's denial of Jesus. And Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? He says, yes. And then he falls apart. And he says, you know I love you. You know everything. Um, and then Jesus commissions him, tells him about the death, that Peter is going to die one day. And he's going to be crucified like Jesus was. And he says, follow me. Follow me into, into, into death. Um, and then the gospel finishes. So you have this epilogue at the end. Let's go to the question of why I think it's more uh, of an accurate timeline of Jesus' life. Um, in 
um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus only goes to Jerusalem at the end of his life. He only goes there um, during the build-up to Easter and then and dies there. Um, whereas in John's Gospel, he's like back and forth every few chapters. Um, and I think that is more likely to be the case for Jesus' life. Because according to Deuteronomy, every male Jew uh, or, or Israelite, sorry, was required to go down to Jerusalem for three festivals during the year. Later, by the time of Jesus' life, it actually becomes four festivals. Uh, so they are the Passover, the Feast of Booths. What's the other one? The third feast. And then the one which gets added is the Feast of Dedication. And so each year, Jewish men were to go back to Jerusalem four times. And so I think that makes sense of, of why Jesus is going back and forth. So why do the other Gospels not do that? Well, uh, it's like when Jesus goes to uh, Jerusalem, like it's the big showdown, you know? And so they're, they're good storytellers. They want to build up the tension to the final confrontation with the big boss. Uh, and I think that's why they have Jesus going at the end. Um, and so in John's gospel, he's going back and forth, whereas in, in, in the others, that's not the case. Um, and so I think John gives us quite an accurate timeline for just pinning points on Jesus' life. We're going to go for like, maybe like 45 minutes in this next session. And a big chunk of it is you guys going to be doing some work. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm outsourcing the teaching to you guys. Um, <laughs> Before we get into it, let me just say some things about the story in John chapter 8 of the, the stoning of the woman at the well. And then I think I can make some... Not, stoning of the woman at the well, my goodness. <laughs> I'm really sorry, guys. Um, you know, if I was charging you, I'd give you like half a refund for today you're only getting half of me um the the stoning of the woman caught in adultery uh in chapter eight although she's not actually stoned but you get what i'm uh, you get what i'm saying um if you uh look in your bibles at that chapter most of your bibles have a little note saying that this um this passage doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts of john's gospel so all the early copies of John's Gospel that we've got uh, miss this. I think it starts to creep in towards the end of the second century. So potentially um, the first time we see it is like 100 years after John wrote it. Um, don't quote me on that. I'm not quite sure of when it comes in, but I know it comes later. Um, now, it's a wonderful story, isn't it? Um, I mean, and it's... It's so in keeping with everything else we know from the New Testament about who Jesus is. Um, you know, his grace, his willingness to stand up to the authorities. Am I echoing a bit? Do I need to... I might have turned one of these the wrong way around. <laughs> yeah? No, Tim's like, crack on. Um, but the, the feel of it is quite different to the rest of John's Gospel. Um, it's much kind of uh, less reflective than some of the other episodes in John's Gospel. Um, so if you look at kind of similar situations where Jesus interacts with somebody, so like the woman at the well, for example, and his conversation with her, or when he heals the blind man in chapter 9, um, what goes on 
in chapter 8 that the episode with the woman caught in adultery feels very different. It's less reflective. There's less kind of deep things that Jesus communicates to her. Um, and, and just stylistically, the way it's written apparently in Greek is quite different to the rest of John's Gospel. Um, also, it seems to interrupt the flow of what's going on in the chapters either side. So um, the, chap- the action in chapter 7 and the rest of chapter 8, Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, which is the feast which remembered Israel's time in the wilderness. Um, and at that festival, they did two things. They, they lit lanterns in the temple, and then on the, big, the final day, they poured out water on a rock to remember how God had given them water from the rock in the wilderness. And chapter 7 and chapter 8... Uh, Jesus makes reference to those events going on. So he, he says, you know, come to me all who thirst. And then he says, I am the light of the world. Um, again, this section in John 8 seems to kind of interrupt that. So what do we do with that? If it looks like John didn't write it, what do we do? I know some church leaders who refuse to preach on John 8. Um, and I could see people's faces being like, what? I love that scripture. So do I. Um, I, would, I would happily try and preach a blinder on that because uh, it's a glorious passage which just shows us who Jesus is. I think that the early church had this story um, and they had it set down by somebody um, and they loved it and they cherished it and they did their best to try and find where could they fit it in the four Gospels and they put it in. Um, and when the church makes its final decision as to which books of the Bible stay in, um, they decide to keep John with this edition in there. And then later throughout church history, you know, in the Reformation, when people are rethinking scripture and just, you know, wanting to, to say, actually, what are the, what are the books of, of scripture that, you know, we can really trust and really set forth for gospel? Um, the Reformers, again, keep John's gospel and this extract in it. And so I... The way I I deal with this is I say throughout the history of the church, God's people have loved this story, have encountered the Lord Jesus in it, uh, and have have wanted to keep it in, have have deemed that it should stay in scripture. And I believe that the spirit works through the church over the course of history. Um, And that, you know, these men and women, when they made these decisions, they did so as led by the Holy Spirit. And so, although I think, yeah, it's a bit of an odyssey, probably wasn't written by John, um, I think it's still Holy Spirit inspired and uh, it was inspired to keep it in scripture. Uh, and so I think when you read that in your devotionals, uh, read it with all the confidence. Bless you. Um, yeah? Great. There we go. Um, cool. Okay, let's have a look at the prologue. Let's go to the very first few words of John's Gospel. Whoever wrote John's Gospel, I think, has, like, different ways of writing. Um, So, on the days when I'm more confident that it was the Apostle John, uh, if it it was the Apostle John, then it's the same person who wrote John 1, 2, and 3, the letters later on in in the New Testament, and possibly the person who wrote the Revelation uh, Revelation of Jesus Christ. that's debated as to whether that was the Apostle John or, a, or another John. It's a little bit like when I come to Manchester, everybody's called Andrew. Apparently in the first century, everybody was called John. Or every, every other person was called John. Um, 
And on one hand, the prologue of John's Gospel kind of stands apart from the rest of it. Because uh, you've got a few words and terms and ideas which just are, are like full of glory, but then aren't picked up later on. So very famously, John says Jesus is the word. Um, but he won't refer to Jesus as the word at all throughout the rest of his gospel. Um, he uses the word grace, and I'm going to make a lot of the way he uses grace in the prologue. He says some wonderful things. He says, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Um, and yet he won't use the word grace at all throughout the rest of the gospel. Um, so on one hand, it kind of feels slightly different. But then the themes of the prologue are then beautifully worked out throughout the rest of the gospel, even if they're not referred back to. And so I want to spend a little bit of time, just all of us together, just picking apart what's going on here. Uh, and then that will set us up to think about different passages of scripture of the gospel, which I'll get you to look at yourselves. Shall we give it a read? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and has not, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's just pause there. Does that remind anybody of another passage of scripture? Genesis, Genesis yes, Genesis 1. Uh, the story in the Hebrew Bible of how God created the world. Um, and you have a direct reference, an echo uh, of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 starts, in the beginning, God. And John is tapping into that. Remember, it's a, it's a very oral culture. They would have known their scriptures really well. And it says, in the beginning, the word. And so John is, is saying, he's taking us back. He's, gonna, he's saying, I'm going to give you a new angle on, on what happened at the beginning, how God created the world. And uh, if you think back to Genesis, how does God create the world? What does he do? He speaks, doesn't he? And so John says, in the beginning, there was the word. Again, echoing what's going on in Genesis there. Now, uh, I'm a big Curry fan, uh, which I imagine in Manchester, I've got, there's a fair few sympathetic people here. Um, and uh, imagine I, well, uh, I'm not sure if I'm quite awake enough to do it, but um, imagine I was telling you about the best curry I ever had. I'll, st I'll, I'll have a shot, I'll have a shot. Um, I was in Nepal at the time and uh, just met a, a quite well-informed uh, traveller along my way and he said, you've got to go to this, uh, this hut. Uh, I was staying in, um, where was I? Staying by a big lake and because I'm so, so... I used to have a really good, yes, Pokhara, Pokhara, there you go. I used to have a really good memory, it's gone. Um, on the North Shore, there was a, just a bunch of huts, small houses, and there was one house which was owned by a family. And, uh, and my friend said, you should go there, middle of the morning, and put an order in for dinner. And I thought, it's a little bit strange, and didn't met this wonderful, warm, hospitable lady. Um, and she ran a, a small kind of restaurant business in her front room. Um, and there was, say put your order in, there was only one option, it was a vegetable curry. Um, 
and she basically spent all day cooking it and it was the tastiest thing I have ever experienced. The, the flavours of the individual vegetables in there, the sauce, the spices, the warmth of it, the punch, and yet the kind of gentleness at the same time. The rice was like, I mean, I've never, all rice is like kind of cardboard to me now. <laughs> After this, the bread that she baked herself was just perfect and soft as she tore it to pieces. The whole house smelt glorious. It was just amazing. Um, now, if I've done, you know, a vaguely okay job in, in saying that to you, my words have hopefully given you a sense. Words repeat experiences. Um, you know, if I do a really good job, you might say, oh, man, it's almost as if I could taste it. Yeah? Do you get what I mean by that? And actually, uh, I've learned this this week. Um, Neurologically, in our minds, as somebody tells us a story, our brains fire um, uh, electrodes which basically simulate the feelings that we're being told about. Crazy. Like, words make our brains repeat experiences. Um, and that's the case with finite human words. How much more so with God's word? That God's word, when he speaks it, is going to be a perfect repetition of what he speaks. A perfect representation of what God wants to communicate. And what God wants to communicate is himself. And so God, in the beginning, speaks a word. And that word is with God. And is such a perfect communication of God that the word itself is God again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. How do we understand this, this term in the beginning? Well, he, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, so, uh, John's going to give us two categories. God and all things that are made. Where are we going to put the Word? Um, take a look at the, at the text. Where are we going to put the word? You've got God on this hand, and you've got all things that were made. Yeah, the word's with God. He's not made, because all things that were made are made through the word, which means that he wasn't made, which means that this expression in the beginning, well, my brain kind of starts to kind of do this. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So... Because we say in the beginning, we think at a certain point in time. But John's kind of saying, kind of in the, in the nus that was before the beginning. Because there was this word who was with God, but was not made. Because everything that was ever made was made through him. So he existed with God. And we've got a second session to do with the Trinity later on. Um, but this is, a, this is a big claim. This is a big, big claim that John is making. All things were made through him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And there's lots we could unpack about that, but um, we're not going to do that today. The light shines in the darkness. Uh, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, according to Genesis, and they are formless. There's no form, there's no shape, and it's all dark. And uh, in fact, it's described as a big watery abyss. 
And then the first thing that God speaks is light. And in Jesus is light, and the light shines in the darkness. And, and uh, you know, if you go into a dark room and you turn the light on, what happens to the darkness? It clears out, doesn't it? Darkness can't go, hey, hold up, and push back. Darkness has to go, because darkness is the opposite of light. Light shines, and darkness cannot push back on it. John gives us that as a kind of reflection on creation, but he's going to use that as an image throughout his gospel as well. Speaking of light, he then kind of seems to really change gear all of a sudden, at least at first glance. So he's kind of given us this in the beginningness, and then he says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And that's confusing, isn't it? Because who's writing this gospel? John. Because like everybody else in the first century, he's called John. Um, And so which John are we talking about? Well, if you read on, it's actually John the Baptist. But I think it's purposely a bit ambiguous. Um, I got a really good scowl by a lady. (laughs) She's like, what? Um, So John, the gospel writer, is going to introduce John the Baptist. And he says, he came to bear witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. In Genesis, you've got this very strange thing that uh, God creates things in the first three days, which he then orders in the second three days. Genesis is structured like this. So in day one, he creates the light. In day two, he creates the heavens and the sea. No, hang on. He separates the sea and the land. And then in day three, he brings about vegetable life on the earth, I think. And then on day four, he orders the light into the sun, the moon and the stars. Don't ask me about that. We'll talk about that another time. Um, but do you see what's going on there? He creates light and then he orders it on that day. And then on, on this day, he... I've got myself confused here. I'm not speaking on Genesis, so, you know, there we go. Um, but, you've got the, but when, in Genesis, he orders the light into the sun, moons and stars, he says that uh, he, God gives us these things as signs. Signs for seasons. And here... In John 1, further echoing Genesis 1, John says you've got the light, the word, there's the word and the light shines in the darkness, the light shines through this word. And then he changes gear and he says you've got people in the history of the world, like John the Baptist, who are a witness to the light. The light shines through them. Like light shines through the stars. These people are like stars shining in the course of history. And John the Baptist is like that. And I think the author's kind of also saying, what I'm doing in writing this gospel is doing a similar thing. Which is why I think it's a bit ambiguous. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. John's setting up something really important here. That he's saying, on one hand, Jesus is the one through whom all things were made, and yet the world, the nations of the world, don't know him. And this scandal that the human race are alienated and hostile to the one who made us is a theme which John's going to pick up and he's going to ramp up. Because not only does the world not know him, but this word came to his own, 
and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, this is one of my favourite verses, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Um, If you are a British citizen, you have certain rights, don't you? You know, I can go and... uh, I can claim uh, certain benefits from the government. I have access to health care. If I'm in another country and I get into trouble, I can call upon my nation to intervene and look after, for me. look after me. I have rights. And in certain situations, I can lean upon them and say, no, this is, this is my right. I have, uh, I have the authority to do this. I, uh, I have access to um, certain privileges. John says, Jesus gives us the right to become children of God. That you can say, no matter what situation you're in, hang on, I am in Jesus Christ. He's given me the right. Uh, As the only son of God, he's the only one who can give me the right. And I can stake my claim upon that. It's a wonderful summary of all that John is going to tell us that Jesus has done for us. Back to the word in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God was at the Father's side. He has made him known. Verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The Greek word for dwelt is, if I can say it right, eskenosin. Eskenosin. Which literally means uh, pitched up his tent. Um, and what's John getting on there? On up there, is he saying the second person of the Trinity is a happy camper? Uh, no, he's referencing. When else have we come across a tent in Scripture? Tabernacle, yes. God's dwelling place with His people. <coughs> As He saved them out of Egypt, He came and dwelt amongst them in a tent and tabernacle. And so John is saying the Word came and tabernacled with His people, but He didn't do it in a in a tent or a temple or a handmade structure, he did it in human flesh. Human flesh and dwelt amongst us. The, the human life that John is going to tell us about, the life that walks around, gets hungry, gets thirsty, that cries, this is God pitching his tent up in the middle of history. This is the presence and the glory of God with his people. This is God come to save his people and be with them. Wonderful, wonderful news. But the tragedy of John's gospel is his own people did not receive him. That's what he said earlier on. And we just need to talk about that for a second. Um, Because there's a bit of a kind of ethical issue here to do with John's gospel. And it has a bit of a shady history. On one hand, we need to deal with that. But on the other hand, asking this question is going to open up the rest of John's gospel for us. What does it mean that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him? And so we need to ask the question, 
of Jesus' relationship in this gospel to the Jewish people. Um, and there's a complicated and slightly distressing history behind here, uh, which is sad because we have to go away from the glory of those verses we just looked at to, to go into this, but it, it will be very helpful. So in, in verse 17, well, hang on, sorry, let me, let me backtrack. Um, throughout the gospel, the author, John, is going to repeatedly say that the Jews opposed Jesus. The Jews plotted to kill Jesus. The Jews eventually hand him over. And uh, I read it this morning coming up on the train. That it's the Jews who cry out, crucify him to Pilate. And so John's Gospel has at times been read as being anti-Semitic and has been used by Christians to justify violence and, and other forms of abuse towards Jewish people, which is horrific when you think about what this text is meant to be, that this is the gospel, this is, this is the life of Christ, um, and the good news of his grace to all people. So what's going on there? Um, well, we can get at that by coming at a more theological question. In verse 17 of of the prologue, um, John says, the law was given through Moses. That's the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the way Israel were to live their life and worship their Lord. That came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now that could sound like the author saying, God did this thing through Moses, but really the good stuff's coming through Jesus. The much better stuff. We don't need to think about that stuff anymore. That was kind of boring and dull and actually a little bit nasty. And, and now we've got grace and truth. Hurrah. But that goes against everything else John will do in the rest of his gospel. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. God so loved his own Jewish people who he had rescued out of slavery and cared for and made precious promises to. He loved them so much that when he sent his son, he didn't send his son to the, you know, to the heights of power in Rome or you know, uh, to the Caribbean to have a good time. He sent them to, to his beloved people, the Jewish nation. And the tragedy of John's gospel isn't that the Jewish people are really nasty and, and they kill Christ. It's that these are the people who should get it. These are the people who God's desperate to win back for himself. Uh, and Jesus comes, and throughout John's Gospel, it will say, Jesus will say, and the writer will say, Jesus has done this to fulfill the law. As it is written in Moses, so he's doing this. As your own prophets have said, so, 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 so. John's gospel is, is deeply embedded in the Jewish religion and in, in the story of that nation and that, that people. Uh, Jesus comes and, and everything he communicates about himself is he takes things from the Old Testament and, and tries to say, look, this is pointing to me. Um, and the tragedy is again and again, the Jewish people see it, but don't want to see it. Um, and so John's gospel does give us the the stark and sad fact that the the Jewish people of Jesus' day rejected him, but it also details how many of them followed him and how when he came, he came to fulfil their scriptures, 
to say that everything God had done for you in the past is, is true and I am fulfilling it and upholding it. Um, and the, the John's Gospel should leave us wanting to go and find the Jewish believers in our communities and, and share this message with them. That's, that's where John's getting at. Not any kind of condemning the Jewish people for killing Christ or anything like that. Does that make sense? And the reason I kind of majored this is actually I, I really think viewing John's Gospel as presenting Jesus as the fulfilment of the Old Testament opens it up as to what is going on in chapter after chapter after chapter. And John chapter 5 is the key for that. And so you've got it in your notes. And I'll read it to you. Jesus is uh, having a dispute with the Pharisees. So he's healed somebody on the Sabbath, uh, a man who was uh, paralyzed and the Jewish people um, are cross about it. Uh, the Jewish leaders, sorry, are cross about it. And the reason they're cross about it isn't so much that Jesus has healed this man. They're, they're a little bit too scared of Jesus to kind of talk to him directly. Um, the man who Jesus has healed has taken up his bed and he's walking around with it. And that is deemed to be an act of work on the Sabbath. Um, and so they're, they're, they're looking to condemn this man who's just been healed. I mean, poor bloke's been paralysed most of his life. And now he's, he's healed and then they want to uh, arrest him because he's working on the Sabbath. And Jesus intervenes and they have this dialogue about the Sabbath and, and the laws of Moses. And Jesus says, the father who sent me himself has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. When Jesus is saying that, he's not saying you have no knowledge of God or even that God doesn't speak throughout the Jewish religion. He's, he's saying um, you haven't got, you've not seen God yourself. You've not had a Moses-like experience. You've not heard the voice like the Israelites did in the wilderness. Um, you are not on the authority to, to say you've got it all pinned down. You're not Moses, basically. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do you not think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who will accuse you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The key verse is 39, where he says, you search the scriptures, talking about the Old Testament scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus is saying that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. The Jewish authorities who stand against Jesus are reading the scriptures, but not believing them. And the key... And we can do that, yeah, totally. So go on. Worship the Bible, not worship who the Bible is pointing us to. Yeah, totally, totally. We can we can get lost in kind of uh, in knowing it, head knowledge, or kind of knowing it as a way to live your life, or 
And, and it is, you know, it does give you lots of things to think about. It does give you a way to live your life. But first and foremost, Scripture exists to be a, a witness, a light, pointing us towards the true light, Jesus Christ. Yes, yeah, a really good point. And so Jesus is saying you, to them that you are going to be judged by your own religion. So rather than overthrowing the Old Testament and the Jewish story, Jesus comes to fulfill it. And all the Gospels do their best to show this, but John in particular takes time to really meditate on how Jesus is uh, the one that the Jewish religion points to. So let's just go back to the prologue very briefly. The, the climax of the whole thing is, is the final four verses beginning, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. John is saying that God's glorious presence has returned to his people, um, but not in a temple or any other man-made structure, but in human flesh. And John wants to share Jesus' glory with us. He says, we have seen his glory. And just as John the Baptist was a witness to the light, one through whom the light shined, John the author writes his gospel so that the light of Jesus' glory might shine upon us. And John wants us to see his glory, know the truth about Jesus and receive from him grace upon grace. And so there's these three key terms in the prologue. Glory, we have seen his glory, um, full of grace and truth. And I just, uh, we're going to use these three terms as a way of thinking about the rest of the gospel. Um, so very quickly, what does glory mean? How might John be using that word glory? Let's have some folks shout out. The, the outshining of God. The outshining of God, yeah. Often throughout scripture, glory and kind of bright light is often linked. So there's a link between light, Jesus being the light, of, and, and God's glory. God's splendor, yes, God's splendor, yep, yeah, just the um, splendor, beauty, yeah. you know, the sight of him, like, wow. Majesty, yeah, it's another word, yeah, great. Um, reflection. Reflection of, of who God is, yeah. How about in the passage we just read from John 5? Jesus saying, you receive glory from one another. What is that? What, how is glory being used in that passage? Attributing worth to one another, fame, perhaps authority, you know, uh, value. You know, I really value you. I, I give you glory. Acclaim. Acclaim. Acclaim, yeah. All of those things, I think, are going on. Um, and so John says, we have seen his glory, his beauty, his majesty, his splendor, his fame, his significance, and his authority. How about truth? Can we think of when the word truth or true appears in John's Gospel? Way the truth and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, yes. Somebody else said something else. How about the woman at the well? Yeah, so he says to her, you've spoken truly. So there's something about truth which is acknowledging, acknowledgement. Um, he also says true worshippers will worship in spirit and truth. 
um, something about truth which is like correctly acknowledging. Yeah, I think acknowledging is a really good word, actually, because it's, it's knowing what is true, but it's not just knowing it, it's acknowledging it, it's responding to it, it's worshipping it. Um, and then later, what Jesus is going to talk about the Spirit being the Spirit of truth. Um, and he also says in his prayer in chapter 17, he says, Father, your word is truth. And then uh, famously at the end of the Gospel, Pilate will say, what is truth? as kind of the demonstration of his total denial of who Jesus is. Uh, so glory, truth, and grace. Now, I said earlier on, grace doesn't actually appear in the rest of John's gospel, but it's quite important here in the prologue. Um, he says we receive grace upon grace. What does grace mean? Undeserved favour, yeah. It's a great definition. You can also translate the Greek word as gift. Yeah, free gift, yeah, free gift given. Um, so the gospel, the, the prologue says we receive grace upon grace. And in particular, we receive the grace to become children of God, the right to become children of God, even though we didn't deserve it. Going back to the uh, my British citizenship, um, if I uh, went to... I went to India and they gave me Indian citizenship. I'd be like, well, hang on, I've nobody in my family's from India. Um, I, I don't deserve to have this. I've got no kind of tie or connection to India. Uh, it would be a gift, it would be a, a grace to me. And I think the grace that John has in mind in the prologue is us having the rights to become children of God and everything that that means um, throughout the rest of the gospel. Okay, so. I'm going to get you into your groups to take a look at some themes that run throughout the Gospel of John. Um, and so I've, we've already talked about how in John's Gospel, what we're presented with is uh, reflections from the Old Testament, from the Jewish religion, uh, and how Jesus comes to fulfil them. Um, and John does that in different ways. Sometimes he does it in uh, like a festival that's going on at the time and he shows us how that festival points towards Jesus. At other times he points us towards kind of figures or titles that emerge in the Old Testament story like Messiah or King of Israel or David's son, things like this. And he shows us how Jesus fulfills that. Uh, and so what I've done is I've, I've put together, uh, the, the, oh no they won't come up on the screen but they are on your handout. Um, different, I'm going to call them motifs which I can't say without sounding poncy. Because <laughs> if I say motifs, that just sounds daft. But motifs sound silly as well. I don't quite know what to do with that. Anyway, that's for me to ponder. Um, different, different motifs that John puts together where he, he's taking an Old Testament idea and he's showing how Jesus comes to fulfil it. Um, and for each one, I've got a series of... Um, passages from John's Gospel and then a couple of passages from Old Testament text as well. And in your tables you need to work together just to kind of put the pieces together and then one of you is going to come up and feed back and somehow we'll then have a break and do the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and for each one I want you guys to ask three questions. Um, how does that motif use Old Testament themes to display Jesus' glory? How does it show Jesus' authority, his beauty, his fame? 
How does that motif reveal the truth about Jesus and our salvation? What does it teach us about how we're saved? And then finally, how does this motif communicate grace to us? What does it teach us about what we receive in salvation? How does your heart burn? How do you think, wow, I can't believe that Jesus has done that for me? Yeah? Um, They'll stay up on the screen, so you can keep referencing back to that. Um, And then we're going to work around. I think I've got enough tables for exercises but it wouldn't be a problem if we doubled up so you guys down here if you could look at the theme of temple jesus as the temple light of the world the bread of life the fountain and the rock that's my favorite just to say so do a good job uh behind you guys lamb of god and then at the back table is there a back table can't really tell just like hangers on at the back. Um, if you guys do, maybe if you join with the table just in front of you and do the bridegroom, and then I'm really, I mean, I can't really see the tables. Do you know which table I'm talking to now? No? Okay. Okay, so Tim's row and back, you're doing the bridegroom. I've just spotted my notes say bridge groom. <laughs> It's good to be humble, isn't it? Uh, and then the table before that, so you, you ladies who were kind of looking very confused a second ago, King of Israel. Um, and then table before that, is there one table or two tables there? One table. And there's the lady here and the gentleman with the, the bright inner bit of your coat. Are you one table? Okay, you be with the table in front of you, the three gentlemen in front of you. And you guys do Son of God. And then uh, you guys, Word of the Father. Um, mm, you two tables here do the great I am, because there's quite a lot to get through there. Uh, and then let's break you guys into two sets of two. So, Son of Man at the back there, and the resurrection and the life here. Um, See so you guys. Uh, and I think probably the best way for us to do this would be for me to give you until half past, and in that time, grab tea and coffee. Yeah? So, kind of take it as a little bit of a break, but also as the time to do a bit of work. A working break. I've come all this way. You've not got me for long. Okay, guys, if I can get you to turn on back. Um, I, I'm, originally, my plan was to get somebody up from each table to feedback, but uh, Andy very wisely just showed me the time. And, uh, <laughs> he did it very graciously, very kindly. Um, and so we need to get a move on if I'm going to talk to you about the Trinity, and I want to serve you and make sure I get to do that. So... Um, how this is going to work is that I'm going to take us through each one of these motifs and motifs and, uh, and just unpack them. But hopefully that has been helpful for you anyway. Yeah? Because really, it's not just about me giving you the answers. It's, it's me taking you to get your hands, you know, covered in ink, as it were, looking at scripture. And I, I would really, I mean, John's gospel, like, you know, on one hand, it's accessible enough that, you know, 
I could read bits of it to my daughter and she would get what, a, what was going on. And on the other hand, you can spend the rest of your life meditating on it. Um, and so I really want to encourage you to take that list of different motifs away and just go and look at it yourself. You know, maybe you could do it for your own devotion, Bible study, um, do it in groups. Uh, John's Gospel just, un- like, you unravel it. It just yields riches upon riches upon riches. Um, so let me whistle through some of these. In chapter 3, uh, you have a, a bit of time of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist uh, is asked how he feels about Jesus. And he uses this uh, illustration. He says, um, at a wedding, the bridegroom's mates rejoice in the presence of the bridegroom. And John's Baptist is saying, Jesus is the bridegroom in that picture, and he's, you know, the best man. Um, And on one hand, that just sounds like a simple analogy about John's relationship to Jesus. But actually, this theme of the bridegroom is very important throughout Scripture, uh, where time and time again, God has said to his people Israel, you are my beloved bride, and I am your bridegroom. And one day I'm going to come, sweep you off your feet, and it will be like a, a wedding feast. And already, by the time we get to John the Baptist saying that, we've come across a few clues that Jesus is that figure already. So, uh, back in chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana, uh, the bridegroom's job is to provide enough wine for his wedding. You know, you had one job. (laughs) uh, And the bridegroom's got it wrong. And this would have been a deeply shameful thing for the bridegroom. And yet Jesus is there in the background, uh, saving his skin. And he's doing the job of the bridegroom. And throughout Israel's scripture, all the promises of when God was going to come to his people and set things right, wine is a prominent image. That in the restored kingdom of God on earth, wine is going to be in abundance. Can I get an amen? And there's Jesus turning water to wine, doing the job of the bridegroom. And John's like, "Uh uh-huh, take a look. This is is the fulfillment of all those mentions of wine and and the Lord coming to sweep us off our feet. Uh, And this continues. um, uh, Bridegroom's one of my favourite images in John's Gospel. Um, Earlier on in chapter 1, people were asking John the Baptist, are you the Messiah? And he said, no, I am not worthy to untie the sandals of him who is to come. There was a custom in ancient Israel, and you can read about it in the book of Ruth, where if there was, uh, two, uh, if there was a, a woman who had been married um, and her husband died, it fell upon other members of the family, male members of the family, to marry her and to give her children in the name of the man who died. And if you were to do that, it was called redeeming her. Because here's a woman who, you know, she's fallen in love, she's got married, you know, there's this promise that she's going to bring forth new life, and then tragically that's taken away. And so to redeem her, to fulfill what, you know, was going to happen, uh, somebody needs to marry her and give her kids in the name of of the husband. Um, And if there was a dispute about that, so say two brothers or cousins or whatever are talking about it, the person who was to kind of step back and say, I'm not to redeem, would take off his sandals and hand them to the other person. Say, I'm not worthy to untie your sandals because you're the redeemer. You keep your sandals on. John the Baptist says, I am not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals because he's the bridegroom. And then in chapter 4, 
Jesus goes to the well. Now, in the ancient world, if you wanted to hook up with somebody, you went to the well. That's where it's at. Go back into Genesis. Isaac finds his lady at the well. Jacob finds his lady at the well. Um, and Jacob's very important because Jesus goes to Jacob's well. And so we're like, uh-huh, Jesus, we know what you're doing here. <laughs> and who does he go to find? He goes to find a shamed, disgraced, non-Jewish lady who's had five husbands and is now shacked up with another bloke. And he comes to care for her and minister to her. Uh, this is what it looks like when the bridegroom comes to gather the church together, his bride. It's beautiful, wonderful stuff. And he's the king of Israel. Um, in chapter 1, um, Philip goes to see his friend Nathaniel and says, Behold, we've seen the king of Israel, um, Jesus Christ. And, uh, and that theme gets picked up again and again throughout um, the gospel. And eventually it's nailed over Jesus' head. And Pilate uh, puts that inscription there. Um, I'll come back to the, the King of Israel in, in a bit, actually. Um, I've jumped the order around slightly, but that's, that's fine. I just was excited to talk to you about the bridegroom. Um, back in chapter 1, John tells us that Jesus is, is tabernacling amongst us. He is where God's presence now dwells. Um, and this is a theme which, again, runs throughout the rest of John's Gospel. So at the end of chapter 1... Jesus meets Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's very cynical about Jesus, and then Jesus prophesies over him, and Nathaniel says, you, you know me, you are the son of, uh, son of God, the king of Israel, and Jesus says, wow, you, you believed us after that. Keep watching, you will see angels ascending and descending upon the son of man, descending and ascending on the son of man. And in doing that, does anybody know what he's referencing? Jacob's, Jacob's ladder, great, yeah. Um, where Jacob in the Old Testament had a vision of angels descending and ascending, like a stairway from heaven to earth. This is where heaven and earth meet. And Jesus is saying, I am now that, that intersection between heaven and earth. I am the new temple. And then he goes to the temple and he clears the temple out and cleanses it. And then he says this mysterious thing. He says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And the Jews misunderstand him. They think he's talking about the temple building. But after the resurrection, the disciples go, oh, hang on, when he said that, he wasn't talking about the temple, he was talking about his body. That his body is where heaven and earth meet. Um, there's other themes that we could go into. Um, in the temple, in the Old Testament temple, you would go in to the, uh, the holy place, well, you'd only go in if you were a priest, but inside there were a couple of bits of furniture, three important bits of furniture. Ark of the Covenant, where God kind of sat, that was his throne, and then there were two other bits. There was a light with seven stands on it, uh, and the light was very important because you walked into the temple and it was dark, no windows, and it was like a picture representing how when you come from the kind of daily life into the presence of God, you are, you're walking into darkness, you don't know. Uh, you're, you're encountering things that are beyond you, but the light was there to, to give light, to illuminate. Um, and Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Also in the temple, there was a table. And does anybody know what was on the table? Bread. bread. Yeah, bread. And, and it was kept over from the journey in the wilderness where God had given them bread every day. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Um, so Jesus kind of building on him being the temple 
the, the items within the temple, he's saying they pointed towards me as well. Um, that sustenance that kept God's people going in the wilderness, that pointed to me. The light shines in the darkness, illuminates the things you don't know. That's me. Um, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, there's a wonderful story in chapter 17 of Exodus where the people are grumbling uh, yet again. And Moses uh, complains to the Lord and uh, God's, God says to Moses, I want you to take your staff. And if you think about Moses' staff, uh, when he tends to use it, bad things tend to happen to the folks who are rebelling against God. Uh, he uses the staff to bring about the plagues in Egypt. And so you think, uh-oh, the Israelites are in trouble because Moses has got his smiting staff. And God says to him, I want you to walk out in front of the people to a rock. And then he says this, I will stand on the rock and you are to strike it. And so you think, hang on, Moses is striking judgment, but the one he's striking at is the Lord standing on the rock. And then water pours out from it. This was celebrated at the Feast of Booths, which Jesus goes to in chapter 7 through to 9. And on the final day of the festival, the great day of the festival, they would have a rock in the temple and the priest would bring a big bucket of water and pour it out to remember this moment. And at that day, Jesus stands up and he says, anybody thirsts, come to me and I will give you streams of living water. And then John adds, from out of his side, his being Jesus, streams of water would flow. And then what happens on the cross? Jesus says, I thirst. The one who is the fountain of living life thirsts for us in order that we might receive that living water. And after he dies, the soldier comes and thrusts a spear into his side. And what comes out? Blood and water. Uh, which people often say is like a sign that he was really dead. And it might be the case. But in John's mind, this is Christ is the rock that is struck on our behalf. Glorious. Jesus is the Lamb of God. John the Baptist pointed it, pointed it out earlier on. In fact, Jesus is the whole Passover meal. The Passover celebrated God's people coming out of Egypt. Um, how the firstborn of uh, the Egyptians was stru- struck down, but God passed over Israel in judgment. And each house had to kill a lamb, smear the blood on the door, eat the lamb with, a, with bread, bitter herbs, and later they would drink wine as well. Um, and Jesus uh, is all three elements of the meal. He is the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world, killed in our place. And as we shelter under his blood, God's judgment passes over us. He's the bread of life that comes down to sustain us, and he gives his blood as, to us to drink as well. He's the vine, the source of, of true wine. I mean, I could do that for each one of these, but we, we do need to move on. Um, throughout John's Gospel, um, various different points in times, Jesus uh, will be asked a question about his identity or will say something about himself. And he will, in the course of what he says, say, I am. And John, this happens uh, 14 times, two sets of seven in John's Gospel. Uh, The first set of seven are explicit times and Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am um, the vine. And then other times people ask him a question and he simply replies, I am. Um, And in doing this, he is echoing 
the revelation of God in Exodus 3, where Moses says, what is your name? And God says, I am who I am. And then it gets shortened a verse later to I am. Uh, it's like I'm Matthew or Matt. I am who I am. I am. And Jesus is, is consciously repeating this again and again and again uh, throughout John's gospel. Um, and the last time he does it is when they come to arrest him in chapter 18. And, uh, and they ask who he is. And he says, I am. And they, they all fall back. It's like this moment of glory. Um, and they, they all fall down to their feet. And he, just, he doesn't run away. He stands there. Um, and this is, this is explicit stuff. This is John, the, the writer, saying Jesus is making a claim to be the God of the Exodus. Finally, I want to talk about the Son of Man. Son of Man is a term Jesus uses throughout the Gospel. And, uh, and it's a term which is often misunderstood. Um, and Daniel chapter 7 is the place to go for it. Um, and so just make a note of that and go read it another time. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel, he's in captivity in Babylon. He has a vision uh, of these monstrous beasts clamouring for world domination. And they represent different pagan empires that lived um, well, during Daniel's time and, and afterwards. Um, and then in the midst of that, God, the Ancient of Days, takes his throne for judgment. And then, just as judgment's about to happen, Daniel sees this figure coming up on the clouds, ascending into the clouds. Descending into the clouds, sorry. Um, and it's, it's one who looks like a son of man. And to this figure, this figure who looks like a human being, is given power and authority over all the nations to judge these monstrous beasts, to overcome them. And there's lots of speculation uh, throughout the Old Testament time and onwards who this son of man is. Because um, he, he's this figure who seems to be human, but has this, this authority which is far beyond human. And son of man is Jesus' favourite term to describe himself. Um, that's that's the, the term he uses in all the Gospels the most. Um, and so he says earlier on, you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He says that to Nathaniel. Um, and then throughout the Gospel, he talks about how the Son of Man will be lifted up. Lifted up. And you think about the Daniel vision. The Son of Man comes up and he's kind of seated in authority next to God the Father. Uh, and everybody's like, wow, he's, he's the top dog. Um, Jesus says the Son of Man will be lifted up. When you see the Son of Man in his glory, he says these expressions again and again through John's Gospel. But what he refers to is deeply shocking. Because in John's Gospel, when the Son of Man is lifted up, it's on the cross. When he enters into his glory, it's on the cross. Um, and so in John chapter 3, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And he says... Uh, as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man be lifted up. And it's a very slightly obscure reference back to something which happens in Numbers, where God's people have rebelled and snakes are in the camp and they're killing everybody. And this is God's judgment upon the people. And then Moses takes a snake. Oh no, he builds a bronze snake, sorry. Something that looks like the problem. Something that looks evil and he sticks it on a stick and he holds it up. And whenever people look at the, this snake lifted up, this thing that looks like the problem, when they look at it, they're healed from all their, the, the afflictions of the snakes and their rebelliousness and their sin. 
And Jesus says, like that snake was lifted up, the Son of Man will be lifted up. And so John does this mighty thing, this really powerful connection between Scripture, where he takes this image of the Son of Man, one who looks like a human being, coming into divine authority, and he says that happens to Christ dying upon the cross as he gives himself as the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world, as, he, as the Word through whom all things was made, in whom there is life, as he enters into death, that's when he's taking his authority. And that is when we see his glory on the cross as he gives himself for us. Greater love has no man than this, that he lays his life down for his friends. That is the glory of of our God revealed on the cross as he gives himself for us. Uh, And John uses these images from the Old Testament to bring about this powerful revelation of who God is you want to see God in his glory well it does look like thundering mountains and lightning and judgment and uh, beauty and splendor but it also and perhaps most clearly looks like Christ dying on the cross for the sins of the world that's how our God displays his glory and isn't that good news that's him laying his life down for us in love. That is, that's, you know, like, if, you were, if I was to say, you know, I want you to see me in my glory, I'm saying to you, I want you to see me at my best, my truest expression of who I really am. John says, you want to see who God is? Look at the cross. This is Jesus in his glory, son of heaven, dying for me. And you only get that in John's Gospel when you start to dig into the ways in which he opens up the Old Testament and these images to point us towards who Jesus is and what he's done. Wonderful.